0: Welcome to Pantasocracy, and this is your host, Ms. Panty Bliss.
1: Hi, hello, hi. They're all waving at me manically, so thank you. Um, hello and welcome uh, to my pantosocratic parlor of delights. And I have spent the last few hours getting ready uh, and looking particularly gorgeous, so I hope uh, my guests here really appreciate it. And uh, for those of you who are in radio or audio podcast land, you can check out the videos of this show on pantosocracy.ie, and then you can apologize to me for doubting me. Um, now today we are talking about the art of transformation, uh, becoming the person you feel you are meant to or want to be. And I'm using that gorgeous bird, the phoenix, rising up out of its own ashes as a way of thinking about becoming your true self. Something which, I guess, in a way I do all the time, when dull old Rory becomes glamorous Panty Bliss. And I have gathered together a thoughtful, and if I may say so, a very good-looking group of people around our sofa uh, to talk about transformation, uh, not just of ourselves, but also of the places where we live. And they are going to share some stories, and you'll be glad to hear some music, too. So let me introduce them. With me is, first, a woman of words and wheels. Uh, It's the fabulous writer, culture commentator... Louise Bruton, um, who once uh, had Grace Jones, no less, uh, sitting on her lap. Uh, well, don't worry, we'll explain that later. Um, and Louise is well known for being a voice for equal access for all, including those like her who navigate the streets and the clubs in a wheelchair. So welcome, Louise. We'll give you a little clap, Thank Louise. We're socially distanced <laughs> without our usual crowd. Um, next, we have a young man who knows all about transformation, a transgender activist, Noah Halpin, who, as he says himself, didn't choose to be born transgender, but did choose what he did about it in making the transition to becoming Noah and letting go of the body and indeed the name he was born into. So welcome, Noah. Thank you. I'm liking your lockdown hair. No no else. hair I <laughs> um, and uh, then we have uh, a woman who carries some of her transformation in her double-handled-barreled name. It's Indian-born poet Nedi Zakaria Epi. Aha, uh-huh, I've been practicing that. Um, and she found her voice in poetry when she settled in Ireland a few years ago and had to let go of and grieve for several losses in her life. So welcome, Nedi. It's a pleasure to have you. And then we've a woman of music and sound magic, a uh, composer, musician, Una King, who is going to give us some tunes later. Um, and she has a typewriter with her. So I'm very curious to find out uh, how she's going to be using that. Welcome, Una, thank you for coming. You for having and female Moth, as they might say in the French-speaking parts of Belgium. Uh, we've a stunning young woman of song and style, Melina Malone. She's Greek-Irish in background. She's a voice of seductive silk. She grew up on the flats near Harcourt Street, actually where, near where we are today, recording, right here in the heart of Dublin City. And uh, she, like every other singer and artist in the country, is dying to get back to live audiences. Um, and by the way, if you happen to have seen that amazing collaboration of Irish women singers online recently doing a lockdown cover of Dolores O'Riordan's Dream, the native Safe Ireland campaigns against gender violence, uh, well, then you'll have seen and heard Melina in the Mix. Uh, I'm gonna, we'll talk more about that later. So welcome. Thank you. But just before we talk to our guests properly, I am going to hog the floor for a moment, if I may, because this show we have called Phoenix Rising, and that always, the Phoenix, makes me think of my mother. Because, you see, my mother once described me and my older gay brother as being like two exotic birds that just landed down on top of us. And I've always loved that description. So this show got me thinking about uh, me and my exoticness. And, you know, there are a few questions that I get asked all the time. Mostly, how come you're so pretty? Or, no, seriously, what age are you really? But another one is, why did you become a drag queen? And the simplest, honest answer to that is, because I like it, but I know that that is not the answer they want. You know, it doesn't satisfy the complex tangle of curiosity and the many other half-formed questions roiling beneath the calm surface of that simple inquiry, why did you become a drag queen? But the truth is that there is no simple, easy answer. There are a myriad Answers, a myriad reasons, some big, some small, and some I'm not even entirely sure of myself, why I became a drag queen. But if I have the time and if I'm in a generous mood, I'll try to explain one of the bigger reasons. I quite like Rory. He's not perfect by any means, he's a terrible procrastinator, he's poor at time management, doesn't have the patience for box sets, he panics when he has to buy somebody a gift. He can never spell the word accommodation correctly at the first attempt. He has weird toes, and he's been an extreme night owl all of his life. But I like him. I'm comfortable in him. I've had 51 years to get used to him, and I've learned the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. I have a jumper that I quite like to <laughs> Now, it's not as old as Rory, but in jumper years, it's as old as Rory. And it's not perfect either. It's a little worn, and there's a raggedy hole in one sleeve. Uh, it's lost a lot of its shape. Uh, it's worn thin and threadbare at the elbows, and it has a weird bleach stain on one of the shoulders. But I like it. It's lambswool, and it's soft and comfortable and feels homey. But I do not wear it every day. Sometimes I pick it up and it looks boring. It looks not like me. I mean, it's exactly the same jumper that I wore yesterday. The same jumper that I felt cosy in yesterday. That I felt right in yesterday. But today it looks dull and wrong. It looks nondescript and invisible. It looks uh, Danish and hig. But today I'm not Danish and hig. Today I am... Brazilian and I'm going to Carnival or today maybe I'm Alexis Carrington Colby Dexter and I have a board meeting to sweep into and slam my hand on the desk and say don't fuck with me fellas I own 51% of this company and Alexis Carrington Colby Dexter doesn't wear cozy Faded, lambswool jumpers. She wears sharp-shouldered power gowns and sweeps into boardrooms and heels that change the shape of her steel spine to make her stand and walk with purpose and power. She has no use for a jumper that makes you invisible. She is a woman who gets seen, gets heard. Alexis Carrington Colby Dexter is exciting and glamorous and powerful and fun and in technicolor. And sometimes... Doesn't everyone want to be Alexis Carrington Colby Dexter? So, I wasn't entirely truthful at the beginning when I told you that the simplest, honest response to the question, why did you become a drag queen, is because I like it. Because, in truth, the honest, simplest response to why did you become a drag queen is, why the hell didn't you? <laughs> Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, I want to explain the (laughs) Grace Jones reference, Louise. I've been on your lap Mm -hmm. and Grace Jones has been on your lap. And many people explain that.
2: Um, so I've got a thing called Famous People on my knee, which is where I <laughs> <laughs> approach. Um, so I'm in a wheelchair uh, that, that won't compute uh, via the airwaves. But um, I just ask Famous People to sit on my knee for a photo. And it's always the reaction which they give, which is always the best. So Grace Jones full on straddled me and tried to kiss me. And then I got to go to an after party with Workman's and she <laughs> got on her hands and knees and sang Happy Birthday to me, which was great. Um, and then Taylor Swift, I completely warmed to her because she was so on board with how we it was and I was like, oh, you're actually as strange as the rest of us. You're not this Barbie doll pop star. And yeah, I've had a. Well,
1: that's battle. one of the things where you're turning your wheelchair to your advantage. Because it's impossible to say no to you. No, have you ever met anybody more famous than me?
3: <laughs> yeah, <actually. laughs> I almost knocked Beyonce down behind the main stage of Oxygen oh my God, Music you're a good Festival again. in a golf buggy. Wow,
1: th- mm, that's a good one.
3: It is. And Nelly,
1: what about you? Probably Barack Obama. Before oh, no, was- oh, probably <laughs> just Barack Obama. Oh my God, this is before, was- before he became, before he became president. president. You were holding that. I, you before know, I he know became that.
4: president. What's the story with Barack Obama? Oh. I was living in Chicago, and um, some friends were part of the campaign. So, but that was before he was elected. So. Yeah, listen. It's more impressive to
1: have him before his president. Yeah. Oh, you know, I've known him for years. That, <laughs> that's the, pretty much the vibe of it all. Um, anyway, listen, uh, Louise. We are kind of talking about transformation, and in many ways, all of our guests represent it in different ways. And yours is interesting because. It was thrust upon you, uh, I guess. Um, For the benefit of our listeners, of course, you're you're here in a wheelchair today, but you haven't always been.
2: uh... I was born with a walking disability, so I've always had a disability my entire life. I'm very familiar with being in hospitals and having surgery and all that kind of thing. But I think as I was growing up, I was always told that I didn't look like I was disabled. So there was this, this <laughs> idea thrown upon me that I was different to other disabled people because I went to mainstream schools and yeah. um I... But what does that
1: even mean? You, you, yeah. you don't look like a disabled person or a disabled person?
2: I have always been very comfortable with myself, but it's when I come up what other people think what disability should be yeah. that I suddenly find complications in that. Um, So as so I was on crutches for my childhood and my teen years and then when I was 17, um, for aesthetic purposes, I had my right leg amputated so that I'd have two feet on the ground. So that was huh. another kind of physical transformation. That, I'm sorry,
1: just to go back slightly, mm. you know, to being a, a school kid and a teenager on crutches. Yeah. Like that really marks you out in school. I mean,
2: well, it marks you out in the way, but I could also pretend so. I wouldn't have had different treatment because I could trick myself into thinking that other people would think I just had a sprained ankle. Oh, right. So that that was the because I noticed if people asked me, oh, what happened to you when I said, oh, I've just got a walking disability. Suddenly their their tone would change. Yeah. But if I just said I had a sprained ankle, then it's it's business as usual.
1: It's so funny, Noel will understand this definitely. She was trying to pass, you yes. know, like yeah. the transgender people talk about mm. passing, you know, whether you know, people, you know, N- w- know or don't know by looking at them, uh, and in a way you were trying to pass as somebody who just had a sprained angle.
2: Completely. Like that was the whole thing where because I was incredibly physically strong for my entire life, but then when it got to the point, um, so the reason I had my foot amputated was I was born at one leg shorter than the other. Uh-huh. So it was just for aesthetic purposes that I had would have two feet on the ground. Um, but a- that w- Aesthetic purely, no practical benefit. No practical, because I, I didn't have any strength or power in my right leg. So it, w- it wasn't assisting anyway. But Mm. there was the idea that it might uh, prolong my walking years. I was always given the age of 25 for when I would shift from being a crutches user to being a wheelchair user. And that started roughly happening when I was about 23, 24. Mm. But I was in a massive kind of stage of denial with that. And I actually didn't really socialize much for about two years. And it was a very much a mental battle where I had to accept the fact that this was what my life was going to be. But then as I did start using the wheelchair, I was kind of switching between crutches and wheelchair, like if I was going long distances or that kind of thing, I'd use the wheelchair. And then again, I would notice how people were looking at me differently Mm. and how the conversations were changing. And then also how my social life was changing, because beforehand on crutches, I could go upstairs to the smoking area of a pub or a nightclub. Because
1: you love your nightlife. You're a a fun,
2: (laughs) yeah. Um, But then suddenly when I was in the wheelchair, I was in a fire hazard and I wasn't allowed to do that. But... As I started using the wheelchair, I then realized that there was this whole other world open to me that I'd never had before. I suddenly gained back time. But suddenly because I was in this position as a music journalist who's in a wheelchair, work became a little bit difficult because music venues aren't all no. wheelchair accessible. But then because I had this little, little sliver of limelight, I was then asked a lot about disability issues and then in turn, that always led on to sex and disability. So that yeah. that was the main question that a lot of people working in media wanted to know about. Specifically, if I was going in to talk about access and building regulations, which I you know like the back of my hand, the yeah. question was, do you have a boyfriend? What's your sex life like? <laughs> and I hadn't a clue what I didn't like if you ask many 20 Three twenty-four 24 year olds mm. if they can define their sex life it's kind yeah. of hmm, shoulder shrug I don't know yeah. <laughs> um, and then I was suddenly on radio stations and being asked to in, be um, magazines yeah. were asking to interview me about it so it was then this new thing that I've come to realise that with disability is a lot of people within the media want to know about your sex life and it's just this Yeah, it's unfair and th- that's the new way that people look at me mm. so then as a result I've kind of spoke. I've had a play about sex called Why Won't You Have Sex yeah. With Me in The Fringe Show which is why do people keep partnering the fact that I have a physical disability with the need to ask what is my sex life like.
1: Yeah people are, f- are funny like that. <laughs> um Now no I'm actually going to come to you that, here because yeah. in some ways your story is Uh, well, it echoes it in some ways, but in some ways it's almost the mirror opposite because Louise's uh, transformation was sort of forced upon her and then she had to uh, adjust to that, whereas yours was the other way around in the sense that you almost had to force it upon other people in a way um, and you you had to, you instigated the change.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I will always maintain that, you know, a transgender person is never going to be, you know, truly, truly happy until they can live authentically and live them- themselves. So although, you know, we don't choose to be transgender, such as people don't choose to be gay, um, I did choose to transition because I knew that I wouldn't be happy. I wouldn't be truly happy until I did that.
1: Well, I mean, I, I, I think it's true of everybody that nobody can be truly happy unless you're living your authentic real self uh, and there's a billion variations or 8 billion variations and mm-hmm. that it's just i guess it's really obvious in a way when it's a transgender person because the uh you're so far away from your real self and you have to accommodate that somehow
3: well i always knew there was something i'd never say wrong with me because there's nothing at all wrong with being transgender but there was something different about me growing up as a child, um, you know, my first memory of anything gender variant was at three years old. And I really remember it vividly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to think when I was very young that I was growing up to be a boy, which is, you know, such a naive thing to think. But you're, I mean, when you're three or four, yeah. um, gender doesn't mean anything. Um, but then, you know, growing up, I remember my puberty. It started very early at about 11 and I was devastated because I couldn't wear trunks in the swimming pool anymore. And you know, things like that. Uh, and and was this dismissed by everybody as, oh, tomboy, oh, tomboy and all yeah. that stuff? Yeah, yeah, a complete tomboy. Um, I remember people, my mother bought me a jumper that said tomboy on it. Um, <laughs> but uh, if only she knew what was to come. Um, but, but, you know, you're going... Through that, I, I ended up in an all-girls boarding school. I mean, a great school, but not the right environment to be able to come out in. Yeah. And I mean, people say, when did you first know you were trans? And I always say when I heard the word. Um, because I didn't yeah. have the language as a child. And I remember seeing a documentary about a young trans girl. And I said, oh, my God, there's a word for it. And, and that's yeah. what I am. and There's nothing wrong with me. And, yeah. you know, I used to kind of think, are you a lesbian? Is that what it is? But then I'm like, but I don't fancy women. Mm. So, you know, I knew I was... Some something to do with the LGBT community but I didn't know yeah. what transgender was. So when did you tell people? I did that classic thing all young Irish people do I disappeared off to Australia for two years where I started <laughs> kind of I cut my hair off my mother went mad um, but I cut my hair off I started using a different name in Australia where no one really knew me but then I came back and I had to go back into the closet and I was so unhappy then I just mm. said no I, I'm after you know spending a year or two living as the person who I am and now I'm being put back in this box and um, I got really, really down. And I decided after a night out in the George uh, sitting, having a three and one in Charlie's at about 3.30 a.m. with a friend, three sauce on my chin and ended up uh, just saying to my friend, you know, I- I'm transgender. And his response was just, but you're really good at doing makeup. I was like (laughs) if that was the response I mean I can't wait to tell everyone else and then after that um, I kind of just wanted to shout it from the rooftops and of course but then people have
1: different reactions family members friends neighbours whatever so I know from talking
3: to you before it hasn't all been easy and um, you know it's not like you decide one day and then everything's good. No, I mean, especially for people who, who knew me before I transitioned, they come on that journey too, in a sense. Yeah. And there's a transformation for them too. Yeah. And, you know, if you're getting used to calling you something or referring to you as a certain pronoun their whole life or my whole life, Um, it can be much more difficult for the people closest to you to understand. And, you know, the people close to me, we still have some issues with it. But I mean, I'm just hoping... With time Things like that But I have to say The majority of people Are excellent My queer family Are my my family And you know They're my best friends I know
1: some of your Queer family They're always (laughs) Looking out for you Um, I'm I'm going to come back to you But some other stuff later Uh, Melina. I want to come to you Um So uh, we're recording very near where you grew up. Although you moved out to the suburbs, didn't you? Yeah. yeah, So
5: I grew up in Charlemagne Street Flats, uh, just around the corner. Yes. For about 16, 17 years I lived there. So I I moved in there with my family when I was one. What year did you
1: leave there? Uh,
5: I think it was 2012. God, uh, you
1: know, because I lived in Charlemagne Street um, while you were still there.
5: Really?
6: Oh, Oh, my God.
1: That was a young um, neophyte. (laughs) Um, Now, you are beautiful. And I'm sorry. (laughs) to keep mentioning it but I I just you are beautiful um, and you are part Greek yes so my mom. Uh, because you can sort of see your beautiful olive complexion coming through and all
5: Yeah. So my mom is half Greek. That's where my name comes from. That's what her real name actually is. She found out when she was 21, when she got her birth cert, that her first name is actually Melina. So everyone called her Linda in Dublin. She grew up in Cabra and she was uh, raised by her grandmother, who was Irish, and she never knew her Greek father. Her mother passed away then as well. And so she was raised by her Irish family and they kind of just didn't think that it was important yeah. you know what I mean which is crazy and they, I think they were a little bit like the name Alina is very very unusual it's kind of too foreign for Ireland you know what I mean because <laughs> her middle name is Linda so they, everyone called her oh. Linda oh. which is why she didn't know for years that her real name was Melina and then it's, she just loved the name so much she passed it on well, to me Well it's a beautiful name
1: and uh, what do you know about your Greek background or do you care?
5: Um, very little to be honest my mom had tried to find out as much as she could but it's he like so they Lived in London, my grandparents, my mom's mom and dad, and she, they were battling a lot of addiction problems and mm. um, I think a lot of mental health problems as well. So she kind of like left the family, and nobody had really heard from her in years.
1: Yeah. When you were growing up, the Greek, you know, part was not really part of your family stuff, but you clearly have some interest in it because the way that I first um, discovered you is from your version of a famous Greek song. Um, Tell us about that, and um, then we're going to hear it.
5: Yeah, so... The song that I incorporated into my own music is called Ti afto." Yeah. Well, the full name is Ti Naftou Poutalene Agapi. And it's a famous Greek folk song that they use a lot uh, for belly dancers and a Sophia lot of... Sophia Loren. Yeah, Sophia Loren in, in Larenin, uh, yeah. Boy on a Dolphin. It was also used in the film The Lobster recently. Enough. Yes, uh, a lot of I have I heard that, yeah. <laughs> and it's absolutely gorgeous. So mm. I was trying to find something different, something unusual to, yeah. to try to bring to college. And I found this song in Greek. And it just completely spoke to me when I heard it first. And because obviously, when I showed it to my mom, she couldn't believe it. And um, so I just said I'd, I'd learn it for her. I picked it up pretty easily. I, I obviously Musicians don't. Musicians speak to Greek, Greek them, don't
1: they? they have musical ears. <laughs> uh, anyway, you're you're going to do the song for us. Yes. And uh, Stephen is going to join us um, yes, uh, to, to, to accompany you. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's hear it. <laughs>
6: I See, just you and me, yeah, sandy skin and sun-kissed cheeks, the life we see, just like the Greeks. We can win at life you see, just stay Oh, wow. I'll be waiting here, that's all I need I crave a life of simple pleasures, no greeting If you care to join me, you can have it too Cause all I have been waiting for is you Just take my hand, I'll show you the way Leave behind your fist, throw your dice away Let your mind wander and be at peace The Just enough thought, put the lead. Fatisquare sodi, Kyopio sto in soton nostalgia. Water, water, it rains down harder, harder the way sound louder, louder. I can barely breathe. Water, water, it rains down. Harder, harder, the way sound louder. Louder, I can barely breathe. I can't, I can't. Water, water, it rains down. Harder, harder, the way sound louder, louder. I can barely breathe. Water, water, it rains down. Harder, harder, the sound Louder, louder, I can't barely breathe Ooh, I can't barely breathe I can't barely breathe I can't barely breathe Water, water, it rains down Harder, harder, the waves sound So beautiful. Thank you.
2: I'm
1: glad you liked it. That was wonderful. (laughs) Ned, I want to come to you. Um, Your story is actually. Um, Well, it's one of those it's hard for other people to even grasp um, because, well, okay, you're born in Bombay or Mumbai. uh, Let's start there.
4: (laughs) The briefest version. Um, So my before I was born, my um, my family was based in the Middle East because that's where my dad worked. And when I was born, so both my parents are from India, but they're from different parts of India. So when I was Do they
1: speak the same language?
4: No, they don't speak the same mm-hmm. language. So the only language they had in common was English. Yeah. And in the Middle East where my dad was working, it was an oil and gas thing. Mm-hmm. Most of the employees were British and so there was only one school, it was a British school. And um I was the only non British kid there, me and my sister. Uh so when I was I was I was born in India. My parents wanted us to have Indian passports, and um, both my parents' families still lived in different parts of India. And then, uh, but I was just born there, and then we were taken straight back to Abu Dhabi at the time.
1: Your mother, wildly pregnant, flew back to India just to make sure you had the passport.
4: Uh, yes. Yeah, so part of the issue was that. Um, You couldn't really get citizenship and you still can't get citizenship in Middle Eastern countries if you're a foreign Mm. uh, resident. Um, So my parents, uh, my dad moved around a lot with his job. And then in 1990, 1991, the Gulf War started, the first Mm. Gulf War. So we were evacuated and sent back to India. I was maybe seven or six at the time. Um, And then we were kind of thrown into this. We were partway through the school year. Nobody was going to give us admission. We didn't know how to speak the language. You know, it was, it was a very strange situation. So we were kind of thrown into um, a, a, a Hindu school where um, they, they taught in English, but, but Hindi was, um, yeah. you know, a very well, prominent well, well, part your, your
1: education and schooling is, is something that really piques me because um, this show, we're, I'm thinking, we're thinking about transformations. Of, and you would be sent to an ashram and this really struck me. So the, the, the monks would swap the names. You'd have to swap your name with somebody else, or one of the other students, and then you had to answer to their name. And they had, so in a way, they f- made you swap identities. Well, you, w- why? Well, so one of the
4: practices that we had was um, in our community, in our sangha, we had, to, we had to swap names with someone else for a week. And you'd have to answer to the other person's name and they'd have to answer to yours. And we all had to do these kinds of little jobs around, you know, community things. So you'd be either cooking or you'd be, you know, doing stuff in the garden or things like that. So in a way, it didn't really matter whose name was being called because you just had to do the thing that had to be
1: done. But to me now, that really struck me because in some ways... I mean maybe I'm totally reading the monks wrong and they would be horrified at my interpretation of this but mine is that they were teaching you to let go of of the the trappings of identity in a way which is something of course that I've <laughs> I'm do and and I'm interested in and yet identity is so important to people it's so intrinsic to people how we see ourselves and how other people see us labels are very important to people and and, in a way, I felt that the monks were teaching you to just not care about it, and am I right, or am I have I got that all wrong?
4: No, I think you're right. I think in a way, uh, when you look at someone, you're not seeing them, you're seeing sort of a projection of yes. your version of you. So you're never actually ever seeing anybody really or hearing mm-hmm. anybody really or feeling anybody really. Mm-hmm. So it was an attempt to sort of move beyond that, you know, that very sensory kind of perception that that in many ways is extremely flawed. Um, the ways that we frame a narrative in order to make ourselves feel comfortable in a place to make ourselves feel like we belong.
1: Yeah. But then your name that you use professionally as a writer... You punctuate it, but you've taken, there's a slash in the middle of your name. So you, can you explain that to me?
4: Yeah, so my full name is Nidhi Zakaria Ipe, and Zakaria Ipe is my dad's name. So you take on your dad's name. Yes. Yeah. Um, so what I did is put a slash between the Zak and the Arya. So now people either think it's, it's two people, or it's my alter ego, or... <laughs>
1: I, well, I heard <laughs> that sometimes you arrive at events and people have two chairs. Sometimes they have two to chairs to me. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes they say, where's your friend? You know, so. And, but, but is it an alter ego kind of thing or it's a. It, well, I, there's two reasons why
4: I did it. One was because I didn't want to become attached to, to the name and to all the things that it brings with it. Because I think once you have a certain amount of recognition and once your name becomes public in a way, mm-hmm. people start to attach things to it. And I think you can get attached to that, which for me is not a version of who I am. So I didn't want that to be a thing. The other reason is because one of my favorite poets, um, Cheshwof Miwo, she wrote a poem called Ars Poetica. And in it, one of the lines says, the purpose of poetry is to remind us how difficult it is to remain just one person. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because the doors of a house are open, there are no keys and invisible guests come and go at will. Mm. And for me that always resonated because I think this this idea of of being one identity and oneself is quite a myth. I think yeah. that you know this especially with how the media kind of goes about um their definition of integrity and authenticity, and it's mm-hmm. like, well, if you hold two conflicting opinions in yeah. your head, you you're not being a person of integrity and it's like, no, you're just being, being human, yeah, you know? like, yeah. that's what we are. As humans, we're conflicted. You know, we we're contradictory sometimes. Yes. You know, I think it allows you to be vulnerable in a way that you can't be when you are just seen as one monolithic being who could never change. Yeah.
1: So that's sort of... Everyone is capable of change and do change. And yeah. the person you meet today is not the same person you meet next year. Uh, your work is beautiful. And you're going to do a, a very short, but, um, well, I, I I would say almost perfect, little um, a, a piece first. Do you want to tell us the background to this? Because it does connect to the monks we were um, talking about.
4: Yeah, so this is, this is a more personal poem that I wrote um, about my childhood. And it's talking about desire and it's looking at um, how we can never really hold on to anything. Um, but that there's also a sort of beauty in that. Mm-hmm. So this poem is called loss when i was still little i had a teacher a monk sometimes i'd really want something some body to stay i'd shy up to him ask what to do with this desire He would take my hands in his, cup them as a single heart, say, what are you trying to hold on to? Loosen your grip, see the whole sky resting in your palms. Now, sometimes still, I walk outside, Palms spread eagle to the sky, and watch, and everything that I have loved falls through my fingers like silk.
1: So
3: beautiful,
1: you know. And this show is sort of, you know, like I say, vaguely about you know transformation. And now Una. Yours. Yes. Yours again is is very different. Uh, now you've spoken very publicly about um what happened, but for the benefit of listeners who may not know um uh, for example you told Ryan Tubridy it was an unflinching brave detail. We don't need to do all, all all of that again. I'm I'm projecting and you can correct me if I'm wrong. But I feel like so uh, uh, when you were 21 you had an incredibly horrific awful um uh, violent awful rape and it changed you. You yes. weren't the Una that you had been. And then it took you time to find a way back to Una yes. uh, And to who you are now.
0: Um, well, I have done a lot of work mm-hmm. to get to a point where I am now. Yeah. And I kind of felt that there was a little bit of shame left in the corner. There was a bit of, yeah, but you're not really good enough. You're mm-hmm. not really, you know, you, you can't really just go out there and Show yourself you can't yeah. just be yourself mm-hmm. without putting all sorts of obstacles in front of myself and complicating. Uh, so I, I would hide, I would have, um, I have overcome that. and I think it was a brave thing to do, to share, because yeah. it seemed to, it's in, uh, even though I am shy and quiet in in myself, mm. I felt it was important to do that, uh, and I cleared the decks. And, and to extent.
1: You, you were twenty-one at the time, and you were in France, and uh, yeah. you had been working in a bar. And you were cycling home, and you were it was a, you were attacked by a stranger. It was violent. It was just the worst of possible, and you were completely alone, and you didn't tell anybody.
0: No, I went into myself, and uh, it took me seven years. To, to tell anybody about it's it. that a
1: single soul.
0: Apart from the clinic, I went to just to to get the uh, the morning after pill.
1: Um, and did do people close to you think or oh, some You know, notice that there was something different about you, wrong with you? Like they did,
0: yeah, yeah, they did. But I, I've always been quite somebody who's lived in my own head anyway. So yeah, no, it definitely um, they noticed, but I was good at hiding it as well. Yeah. Um, however, I think what is important is you talked about how people can change and I've grown to a point where I'm not afraid to show my imperfection. Mm. Uh, For a long time, like Elizabeth Gilbert says, perfectionism is fear in high heel shoes. (laughs) 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 Well, if you
1: could look at my makeup of clothes, I'm not that perfect. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) um,
0: it is interesting talking a few months after after having spoken to Ryan and the amount of women, especially men, too, who just came up to me and hugged me and said, you know what, I'm going to the rape crisis centre now after that. Mm. I really, that's really moved me. So I'm glad from that point of view. I have an amazing family. Uh, I'm very lucky. I grew up in a loving family. Great friends, but I am quite a, a stubborn person, and I didn't like to show my vulnerability. Now I'm all yeah. about vulnerability.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, so. I totally appreciate uh, that part of it um, <laughs> because I w- was am that way. I don't like to show weakness, and die. I, yeah. I, and I know that that's all has you know prevented. Uh, things in the past, you know. Yeah, but as a
0: woman, it's taken me a long time to come into my feminine and yeah. to show, to be comfortable with my sexuality. Yeah. Um,
1: well, you also, because you were very young when the attack happened. And, and I was very innocent and inexperienced, as well. totally inexperienced, yeah.
0: inexperienced, you know. And I suppose when you're, dare I say, when you're attractive as well, it's it comes at you. There was so much I couldn't. I, I didn't want to be defined by the experience, yeah. so I shut down many aspects of myself.
1: And what helped you?
0: What helped me was a number of things, I suppose. Um, learning to really love myself. Mm-hmm. It's nothing groundbreaking. Yeah. It's messy. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, there's nothing tidy about it. Yeah. But for me, music has always been uh a very big part of my life but you are going
1: to do a piece for us and like and i'd mentioned the typewriter um because you do use uh, you know ambient sound yes and you're kind of multi uh dimensional in that you there's projections and you're 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 unafraid to try things
0: i am i'm really into trying things now and it's yeah i think it's it's exciting and what's i feel very lucky actually uh as well, because I was able to become a mum uh, finally two and a half mm-hmm. years ago mm-hmm. to my little Willow. I hate to go on age, and I already mentioned you, but she's yeah. 46. 47, I think.
1: Uh, l- listeners, go on, the, you're looking yes. at the poem. Thank you. And now tell us about the piece you're doing for us. And this is the typewriter thing, so I'm madly curious.
0: Yes, this is um, a piece called Typewriter Song 3. Because you've had two others. <laughs> two others exactly. It's, um, and there's definitely an element of improv to this. Yeah. And that's what I love about it. But I, I will just, I'll type. It's an industrial, it's an old typewriter. I got in Oxfam Home Furnishings in Francis Street for
1: 30 euros. Uh, it's giving me Dolly Parton 95 immediately, of yes. course. Um, let's hear it. Well, no, I want to then come to you here too, Ian, because now you uh, made a very difficult, huge, big decision to have surgery. Yeah. And not every trans person does. But safe to say, in order to have your surgery, you had top surgery. Um, You had your wrist removed. Uh, you, you had to go abroad. Um, You couldn't get it done here. So uh, tell me about that, because that is a huge thing to for anyone to decide.
3: Yeah, I mean, I knew from the get-go from... When I came out, it was like one of my ultimate goals. I, I, you know, they, I had a very, very large chest. There was no hiding it. Even with a binder, it was very difficult. Um, binder for the... Uh, it's yeah. like a corset for your chest, yeah. basically. It pulls all your breast tissue in and it's very, very tight. It causes a lot of trouble with mm-hmm. your spine, your lungs, your ribs, you name it. And um, so I did that... I, I was binding for years and I just said, no, I, I have to do this. And like you said, unfortunately, there is no surgery options for trans people in Ireland. So I had to travel to Poland uh, last October to have a double mastectomy done. Mm. And um, myself and one of my best friends, uh, Will uh, St. Niger, went over to Poland for 12 days Um, stayed nine days after surgery, traveled home very, very sore. Um, but it was to date, you know, after coming out, it's, I think, one of the best things I've ever done in my you, life. You, you
1: put a picture up on your social media uh, um, of the first time in public you were able to, like, any
3: guy has done a billion times taking a shirt off in nice weather. Yeah, and it was the first time I was able to, you know... I got the surgery in October, so I've not seen any nice weather since I've had it done. Um, but uh, you know, myself and Will were sitting. Why is Will always there for all the first? <laughs> but, um, we we were sitting in Steven's Green Park, and you know, he took his shirt off and laid down. And I was like. Oh, I can do that now. Yeah. I that's something I can do. Um, and, you know, it was just, it's the little things. It's things like being able to take your shirt off and, it, you know, and lie in the grass. It's the th- wearing a white T-shirt. I could never, ever wear a white T-shirt because you could always see my binder underneath. And, mm. you know, the first time after surgery, even wearing a white T-shirt, I was like emotional about it. And it's just a white T-shirt. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but there's lots of little things. I swam for the first time in about six years in January and... I just, it's, you know, all these things that nobody would ever really think about, even things I didn't think about before I had my surgery that I can do now or things I'm not worried about anymore. Yeah. So it's, uh, even sexually too. I mean, it's improved my life mentally, physically, sexually, you name it. I mean, (laughs) it was a hard decision, but it made me more me, if that makes sense. Yeah. Now,
1: Una, you, you also, you know, made a big change. I mean, obviously, you're... In fact getting back to yourself is is just a, such a huge thing um that I feel like you know that's that's your life's work, but then you you decide you wanted to become a mother
0: yes and yes. and and you did yeah, it was something that was really important to me, and can you I know, ask you
1: why it was a-
0: it was important because it's something I didn't think I would be able to do and once I unraveled that mm. I realized it was. The fear of intimacy was blocking me. I decided I wanted to become a mom on my own. I didn't want, well, at my age as well, Mm -hmm. because I was in my late 30s when I started trying and I realised that uh, pretty quickly that I had fertility issues.
1: Yeah, you, you, it, it was IVF and I think we all know that's yeah. expensive and yeah. it can, be, can yeah. be long and difficult. Yeah. And was it for you?
0: It was, yeah. It took it took every penny I had to, I went through four IVFs and on the fifth, I finally got pregnant mm. with a lot of help and I went to the Czech Republic and uh, I got a lot of help. I did get a lot of resistance from those near and dear to me. They were yep. terrified, you know, what you And you both you had to go
1: abroad, you and Noah, mm, like to get yeah. surgery that was... Yeah. yeah,
3: yeah.
0: But I'm so grateful that, that it's there. And I mean, the love that I share for her and have for her, it's it's made me it's made me a much, much more connected person.
1: Melina, I'm coming back to you because uh, for two reasons, because I want to end on something beautiful. And we've been to some dark places today. Um, I also want to say about growing up near here, Um, it's changed so dramatically in your lifetime. And I live in a building that's 40 years old and I met a taxi driver there a couple of months ago and he told me he grew up where my building is and I'd never even considered what was there before. And his community was wiped out overnight and I now feel guilty for loving my apartment. And in a way, you, you symbolise so much of that. You're 25 yeah. from the flats here in the city centre and now you're struggling to be able to afford to live somewhere because everything's so expensive and you, you have a boyfriend and you're you're an emblematic of a new cultural exchange um you're everything about the new Ireland I'm 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 saying to you
5: I suppose I am um I mean yeah it's it's incredibly frustrating that I'm 25 and I think nearly everyone in my age that I know is still living at home yeah. nobody can afford to go anywhere and the places that we cherish are kind of disappearing in front of our eyes and I'm really hoping that this this time right now is kind of waking people up a bit and making people like we've known this we've we all know that this isn't the way we want things to be in Ireland you know what I mean but I'm really hoping that this like instills a bit of action and and what do we what do we want to return to
1: and what do we want it to be? You know, be?
5: what what, does, what is the new normal? You well, know? We're
1: going to bring Stephen back in because he's going to accompany you again.
5: This is a song called Realize. It's about women and femininity and taking back your body, I think, a little bit. So it's kind of apt in a way.
1: It's certainly right right is now. You know that. We <laughs> so <what was> that. <laughs> I hope, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. Let's hear it. I
6: need to realize. My thoughts on of it all, you maintain me enthralled, I knew that I just couldn't take my eyes off you, your aura was strong, it pulled me along, no time to take a breath and face reality, your actions were bold, my story untold. Of all the ways you made me feel so sad and small It's alright for you, your heart's not in No consequence for all this cruel behavior I need to realize You're the reason why My thoughts are misaligned I've been building my strength to keep you at length, for clarity of mind and body, your toxicity. Is polluting me. I no longer crave your attention. You never wanted it all, just the girl that you could call. When your bed was cold, you wanted a companion. It never mattered to you, you'll always do what you do. Disguided love like you don't even need it. No, I need to realize, to realize you're the reason why my thoughts are misaligned. Aligned, yeah, aligned, yeah, I need to realize you're the reason why. Mis- are the misaligned, they'll misaligned, yeah, you're worth more than your body, girl, don't let him define your worth, demand respect, cause that's what you deserve, worth more than your body. You're worth more than your vanity girl Yeah Don't let him define
1: was more impressive your voice or that incredible long hair of yours <laughs> that is it uh, for today's episode of um, Pantasocracy. thank you very much everybody out there for listening and thanks of course to our incredible guests Louise Bruton Noah Halpin um, Neddy Zach, Una Keen, and the beautiful Melina Malone if you are listening to this on the radio you're missing out because if you go to the podcast there's much more it's longer there's more stuff uh, and on pantastocracy.id you'll find videos of all of the performances and much more so that's for today. Please, if you want to, join me next week for a very different group of people and a very different conversation. Goodbye!